0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Jane, we've got a pretty hot button issue to talk about today. Propaganda. And propaganda isn't just I Want You posters featuring Uncle Sam. It has a dark side, too.
1: That's right. It does have a dark side. I think it's most known for back in World War II with uh, Hitler and his propaganda machine. But we're going to take a step back first and uh, and talk about the origin of propaganda, which dates back to about 1622 with actually the Catholic Church when Pope by the name of Gregory Fifteenth, I believe, he uh, started the Congregation of Propaganda. And, you know, at the, at the time, it's not like a hot-button word. It just meant that he wanted to convert back people who had converted to Protestantism from the Reformation at that time.
0: Exactly. So it was a type of missionary work, really. And you may not think that missionary work is synonymous with propaganda, but when you take the term propaganda and look at it in a nutshell, you can see that, you know, it does fall into the big umbrella. And essentially propaganda is a type of media, whether it's print or broadcast, that's used to convey a message to persuade someone to do something. And it could be good or it could be bad when you're trying to convince someone to act in a way that would benefit Himself or herself, then you know you could say that that propaganda isn't too harmful. But if you're trying to disseminate information that's really one-sided mm-hmm. and you're not sharing all the facts, and ultimately if you persuade a person to act a certain way, it's going to be detrimental to him or her, then you've got a case of bad propaganda.
1: And if we're dancing around the issue of what exactly is propaganda, it's because it is such a widely disputed definition. Like scholars like dedicate their their academic lives to defining propaganda. So you know we have to take this talk with a grain of salt of what is propaganda. It's different things to different people.
0: Yeah, and we know that origins of propaganda may stretch back as far as biblical times when an Assyrian king actually used fear propaganda, which is a type that we'll get into in a second, to wage the surrender of the kingdom of Judah. And there are some scholars who say that Caesar may have used propaganda, propaganda to bolster his reputation. So ultimately, Jane is going to get into a really interesting story about propaganda, but before we can get there, we're going to cover some basics so that you guys can have a better, more scholarly understanding of what propaganda is, and I think that a good place to start, just to get you guys thinking about that, is to tell you about a few different types of groups that use propaganda today. So, think about the last anti-smoking commercial you saw, or a safe driving campaign, or maybe some of you out there are high schoolers, and there's someone who comes right before senior prom and, you know, brings a smashed up car into the quad that someone who is driving drunk, you know, got into an accident with. This is propaganda. It's a a visual technique. It's an oral technique, something to convince you to act a certain way. And it's not just anti-something groups. It's businesses. It's political groups. It's governmental organizations. It's political candidates. Certainly, all of you out there heard a radio ad or saw a television spot back, you know, before the November elections. It's yeah, we right
1: off of this time where like, we're just inundated with these political messages, commercials every two seconds for this candidate or that candidate. All of this is propaganda, and, and you're right to mention uh, we usually think of propaganda as these sort of political messages, but of course everything from anti-smoking ads to anti-drinking ads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And don't confuse propaganda with advertisements.
0: You have to think about who's disseminating the message to you, who is trying to get you to act in a certain way, and we'll get into a couple of different ways that you can tell advertisements from propaganda. So now let's talk about some different techniques that people use propaganda.
1: The first one is usually associated uh, with propaganda is called name calling. (laughs) And that's exactly what it sounds like, you guys. Yeah, it is. It's it's basically from the schoolyard, you know, when you used to call someone a name. And basically, uh, people say that you can do this, or people usually do do this, when they want to take the focus off of themselves, and they don't want to answer a question directly, they don't have a, a very good argument to return with. And so they just turn it on the their opponent and they call them something like a hypocrite or a traitor.
0: Yeah, and it's really effective. And to hearken back again to the November elections and the campaign, we saw a lot of name-calling surrounding Barack Obama because it was really easy to throw terms into the, into the mix like, you know, he's a terrorist or, you know, mm. he's a, an Arab or a Muslim. These are some of the terms that people use to name-call him. And a lot of the people who were calling him these names did it out of fear or essentially miseducation of, of who he really was. It's a, a a cheap and easy and direct way to get the side rallied against someone. Yeah,
1: that's right. And you bring us to another version or another method for using propaganda, which is fear. And you can see this a lot, I mean, not to say one way or the other about, uh, about global warming, but Global warming proponents who want us to start paying attention to the issue uh, will use fear um, in terms of saying, look what will happen to our societies, the planet in general, if we don't act. All different kinds of, uh, of movements use the uh, force of fear to get people to come to their side. And that leads to another good
0: one, and that, well, not a good one necessarily, but one that's analogous (laughs) to it, and that's the bandwagon technique. And the idea is that you convince someone, well, everybody else is on this side, don't you want to be on this side too? And it plays on the human emotion to not want to be left alone in the dust. So if you know everyone is going to vote a certain way, or everyone you know believes in global warming,
1: then why not jump on the bandwagon? you be part of it too. That's true. And the idea of wanting to be like everyone else uh, brings us to another one that we call plain folks where elite lofty politicians can can try to identify with the average ordinary person by making him or herself uh, seem like they're just ordinary exactly
0: and if you guys remember an earlier podcast we did about ava perone we mentioned that she spent a lot of her time going around argentina kissing babies cutting ribbons at, at grand openings and things like this and this is you know politicians around the world use this technique because it's a way to be a part of the mass and how many pictures have you've seen of people running for president or people who are presidents, um, oh, I don't know, say, jogging to McDonald's for breakfast or <laughs> lounging on a fishing boat. It's a really good way to keep in touch with the common man when you're not exactly common.
1: That's right. And another method kind of related to that is the idea of transfer, which is taking like a symbol or something that most people like and transferring it to your own cause. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong, Candice, but I kind of associate this with the bloody shirt sort of method in terms of calling on emotions that people already have with one thing like uh, you know the death of a hero or something like that and bringing it over to their own side and saying if you if you feel anything for this fallen hero then you have to join our side sort of thing
0: Oh definitely I think that is okay. applicable or anytime you see, Again, we we keep coming back to political office, but it's just such you know a a salient point. Anytime you see a political figure's face in front of an American flag or an eagle or something like that, you get that sense that they're aligned with a symbol that we have a lot of trust and a lot of history with. If you have patriotism, you'll if you have patriotism, exactly. And that brings us to a final technique that we're going to discuss, and that is glittering generalities and use of words like patriotism and liberty and dream and family, the idea of these very scintillating, sweet little messages and and terms that you can throw around in context with a person's name makes it seem like that person is is criticism-proof. If if you say that, you know, so-and-so is a family man and he believes Mm -hmm. in patriotism, well, how could he be bad? But if you say, you know, Adolf Hitler is a family man and he certainly has a dream, we know that, you know, at least retrospectively,
1: his dream wasn't such a good idea. And that brings us to the most popular, or the most famous, I should say, propaganda machine run by Hitler. He actually eliminated propaganda from the other side. That's, that's one uh, way to do it, is just to get rid of everything that's contrary to what you believe cut the people off from, from their access to that information. And he actually had a minister of propaganda in Joseph Goebbels, and he ran the National Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, which I think is a very interesting name. <laughs> and Goebbels basically ran all media. Uh, he ran news, radio, literature, uh, movies, you name it. There's a famous one called Triumph of the Will. He actually even banned jazz, or at least he tried to, because the music itself seemed too individualistic, and he wants to bring people in line, which I didn't know before, and that, that was a very interesting fact. Um, he was very cunning in that, like, even when Germany lost a battle and things didn't look so great, he didn't even falsify information. He, he didn't want to seem like someone who was covering up. He um, would just sort of uh, draw historical parallels to drive up some spirit, and he would, sometimes he would actually say, oh, Germany has a secret weapon, don't worry, guys. Like, everything's going to be all right. So Goebbels is one of the most famous, and he is very effective, too. I mean, uh, just the whole hype over, over Hitler and the idea that Hitler would be bringing Germany back uh, as a world power, it it really worked, and it was an essential part of Hitler's whole regime. Definitely,
0: and I think that the Nazis took a cue from the success of propaganda in World War One and really made propaganda – a vital component of their campaign. And as far as I understand, like you were saying, Jane, they dispelled all information that would cast the Nazis in an unfavorable light. Mm -hmm. And they did things like selling radios at really rock-bottom prices so that everyone could have a medium through which to hear the Nazi message. There were silent films made showing the Nazis at work. And Hitler was made to appear very large, larger than life, really, and and godlike. And he was everywhere. He was a very pervasive part of the war. And on the other side, if, if you were with the um the Allies, you could see that it worked pretty well to use Hitler in a way to motivate people back home to act in favor of the war. Say you were trying to ration. Um, there were a couple of US World War II posters that said things like, um uh, waste helps the enemy mm-hmm. or they were trying to get people to conserve fuel by carpooling. And so there was this one poster of a guy in a picky little car <laughs> and he's got this um ghost of a figure next to him, which is clearly supposed to be Hitler. And the line reads, when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. That's awesome. And <laughs> another one of my favorite ones was trying to encourage women to get a wartime job while the men were away. And so it shows this very glamorous looking woman looking very forlorn and staring into the distance. Um, and the line on that one reads, longing won't bring him home any sooner. Get a war job. <laughs> Just, you know, and, and propaganda like that sort of makes you feel good because yeah. you look back and you remember when and you you can imagine that people were really, you know, bucking up and, and working hard to to feel patriotic and get the country through the war. And I think that's one of the reasons that propaganda like that today is sort of an art form. You know, we can look at it as a piece of art and study the color and the way that the figures are drawn and how art is used versus photography. And we see photography being used in propaganda from this time, too, especially when, um, I guess, the, the people, the masterminds behind the propaganda wanted a really visceral image to really drive the fact home that people were dying out there. Mm-hmm. And so you can look back at World War II propaganda and see different levels of I guess, of seriousness and, and appeal to people, trying to get people involved.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned art. That's one thing I find really interesting about propaganda and, like, it calls back to an earlier podcast we did on Rosie the Riveter. Uh, they, they brought in Norman Rockwell uh, to paint a very famous image of Of uh, Rosie. Um, But also you look at art in terms of literature, which I find interesting. You you take a look at Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, for instance, one of the most famous pieces of propaganda, anti-slavery propaganda, and books like Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto, obviously. Or even Mein Kampf. Yeah, yeah, incredibly um, influential. And actually, I was going to say about Marxists, um, later Marxists that came after Karl Marx, actually defined propaganda as uh, the reasoned use of historical and scientific arguments to indoctrinate the educated public and they contrasted this to what they called agitation agitation to them was using half truths and like more underhanded ways to exploit the uneducated mm-hmm. and I find this an interesting um, differentiation but also they they came to the conclusion that they needed to use both of these things in order to succeed at all and they could put it together, they actually called it agitprop, (laughs) interesting word, but it was just interesting that they knew that they needed to go after the educated and, uh, and the uneducated through underhanded means in order to succeed at all.
0: Well, that's really smart because you can get the uneducated people on your side using techniques like the bandwagon method or glittering generalities. But if you're going to go after college-educated people who pride themselves on being independent thinkers and being able to think above the average man, you're going to need a more surreptitious means or else you're going to have to appeal to ideological precepts that no one can argue with. And that's what's so interesting. You brought up Uncle Tom's Cabin. I, I read that back in grad school. And if you look At, you know, the the style of prose and the level of vocabulary used, it's pretty. Basic. Anyone could get through that book. Any yeah, level true. of reader. It's yeah. really long, but mm-hmm. you can get through it. It's written very simplistically. And there's something very beautiful about it, too. And it's certainly a touching story, but it's meant for any reader. And it brings to mind the idea of it's speech communication 101, a pathos appeal and an ethos appeal. Are you appealing to someone's emotions or are you appealing to someone's ethics? And I think it yeah. takes two different types of intelligence to relate there. And it helps if you've got both. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if you're trying to get a, a wider audience, I think an emotional pills usually the quickest way, and that's when you see people, even like anti abortion protesters, sitting on the street corner holding up a sign of a, a fetus or a,
1: an arm or something that's you know sort of gory yeah. that really gets you right yeah. then and there. Sure. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, if we're gonna convey anything in this uh, discussion of propaganda, I think it's the idea that propaganda can come in so many different forms and for so many different purposes. Um, I know one uh, topic that you are interested in, Candice, is the idea of the cult of Jonestown, uh, which you know the the article we have on site actually mentions drinking the Kool Aid, and that comes from from this cult of convincing people just to um, to drink poison, basically, out of propaganda, and that's that's pretty effective. It's amazing what people can be convinced to do if words are spun messages. Must-
0: messages are spun in just the right way. And Mm -hmm. at least in the United States, we should be very grateful for the fact that back in 2005 the George W. Bush administration signed into law the Stop Government Propaganda Now bill. Essentially, this bill made it unlawful for TV reporters to take money, to spend a story, and also any messages that are disseminated have to clearly state who's funding them. And the idea is that um, government funds can't be allocated to pay for propaganda.
1: That's right. And this came out of some scandals, I think, right, of uh, governmental agencies paying TV reporters to actually skew messages towards um, um Uh, what they wanted to convey to the people. And so we're really lucky. I know that um, in China, for instance,
0: the people who live there aren't quite as lucky because the government actually back in 2007... There was a public security ministry hired nearly 30,000 people to oversee electronic activity. And these are online forums. And the Internet is a really largely unmonitored source of propaganda. Mm. And it's a double-edged sword because while the Internet can be helpful for you to research both sides of the story to see, you know, who's trying to get you to think what, it also is a a really big sender of these confusing propaganda-type messages. But in China, when people are browsing online, the government had these two cartoon police caricatures created that would sort of pop up every now and then to remind people that their activity was being tracked. And so not only would you be made to feel that you weren't free to educate yourself and to research both sides of the story, but it's known that, you know people over there can't trust necessarily all the statistics that come from the government. There was one case where really heavy rains one summer had flooded parts of of different villages and towns, and there were a lot of deaths from drowning, and the government released a statement that only... 30 or so people had died, and that clearly wasn't the case because a grocery store had been flooded, and at least a hundred people had died in that disaster. And so once the floodwaters had receded and people could see, you know, the corpses floating everywhere, it was clear Mm -hmm. that the government had lied. So, again, we we should be grateful for our freedoms and also be really responsible and think about who's sending a message and and what point is that person trying to get across, who's paying them. So
1: buck up, you guys, and do your research. That's true.
0: And it's interesting
1: you say it's a double-edged sword being having the internet And everything, even, I mean, horrible, of course, that, that China would, would suppress the information from the internet. But at the same time, when we have more options, people tend to only go to those, those places where they know their, their own, um, already established opinions are going to be reinforced. And so, you know, you take, like, if you, if you think that some, uh, news channels, for instance, lean towards the left and, and some lean towards the right, the idea, um, that people fear is that people who are more towards the left will only listen to the leftist, uh, stations. And people towards the right will only listen to the right and nobody's ever going to get like a moderately objective story. And so that is one drawback to having the internet and so many variety of, of, you know, sources of information.
0: Right. I, I agree. Variety, it, it can be bad as well as it can be good. And I know that, that was an issue that even came out with the 2008 elections. There were a lot of, uh, criticisms thrown out against the media for not being objective and, uh, portraying the two presidential candidates and even leading up to the, uh, the Democratic National Convention the portrayal of Obama and Clinton respectively and how things turned out there. So a lot of hubbub and I think that this year especially and even during the first 100 days of the administration, the media is really going to be called to task to be fair and to be objective. I think it's easy Mm -hmm. when you have A young president in office who has such a beautiful family and who's capable of such great things and the country's going through a hard time. I think it's easy to sway one way and to give out, you know, really excited, hopeful messages, but you can't overlook the facts. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And as always, when you guys are reading your newspapers and reading your Internet news sources and listening to the news on the radio and TV, just... Be careful and think for yourselves. And be sure to visit our website to get more information on propaganda and some other historical figures that we've discussed on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.